be looking at Mark chapter 10, verses 32 through 45. If you're new to Redeemer, uh, we make a habit here of, of working through books of the Bible, and so we're going to uh, make our way through Mark. We'll take a break in December for Advent. And then we'll pick it back up in January. Uh, so several more weeks, and then we'll uh, change gears a bit. Uh, Mark chapter 10, verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him. And he told them, see, we're going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. But after three days, he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. And Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism of which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John's. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever will be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we turn our hearts again to your word, and we trust that you will speak to your people through it. Father, I pray that it would be alive and active and sharp and at work this very moment. Isaiah tells us we know that it will, that you will send it from your throne, and your word will accomplish your purpose. For some, our hearts will be hardened to it. And others, it will be softened and convicted, and we will see the beauty of the Lord Jesus, and our lives will begin to look like him. So, Father, we trust that you will do that, and I pray for me that you would give me clarity of thought and boldness and desire, Lord, to honor you through your word for your people. Would you bless it in the name of Jesus? Amen. Uh, if you've been in the book of Mark with us, then uh, today might feel like a, uh, a scene of deja vu. Deja vu is a, a French word or French phrase that means already seen. 
And if you've lived life long enough, then you've probably been in a conversation or in a place or in a classroom even, and it feels like deja vu, like, man, haven't we said this before or did this before? Uh, You ought to have that type of feeling when you come to our passage this morning. And the reason being, if you were to turn back over to Mark chapter 9, verse 30, uh, you're going to see the same thing. Notice in Mark 9, verse 30, Jesus went from there and he said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered in the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will arise But they did not understand the saying. And then right after that, you get the disciples arguing over who is the greatest. So that's in Mark chapter 9. And when you get to Mark chapter 10, it's the same thing. Now, here's the thing. This is not deja vu. This is not a feeling that this happened before. This is a reality. This happened once in Mark 9. And the same thing happens again in Mark 10. Now, my question this morning is why? Why are we getting these two pictures, two different times in two different chapters of the same message? The greatness Jesus is after looks nothing like the greatness the world is after. They are opposed to one another. Jesus shows us his greatness by his humility, by his willingness and longing to lay down his life. And what the disciples want in this passage is not humility. What they want is exaltation. And here's the irony. Jesus lays down his life and gets exalted, and they're in the danger of exalting their lives and getting nothing. Jesus is again comparing greatness in his kingdom with greatness in the world. And I think we ought to listen. The first thing I want us to think about if you're taking notes this morning is another picture of a universal problem. If you're taking notes, we get another picture of a universal problem. Have you ever been in a situation where someone gets bad news and they share that with you? Uh, I had one situation this week, was at an event and something tragic, something very hard happened. And in that moment, I'm stopping what I was kind of there for to attend to this person in need. What goes through your mind when you hear tragedy? I'm dying, I have cancer, I'm sick. And you hear that, that if you're on the receiving end of that news, does not something well up in you and say that that TV show I was watching is unimportant right now? Does not something well up in you and say, hey, can you cancel all of my appointments for the evening because someone I love is about to die? Does not something well up in you when you get that type of traumatic news that says this is not a time for me to go to the grocery store. This is a time to go and sit with someone who is suffering. 
That's the backdrop of the passage. Did you catch what Jesus just told his disciples? He tells them as they are on the way to Jerusalem, I'm going to die. And I'm about to be betrayed by my own people, the Jews. And they will, they will betray me. And, and though they can condemn me to death, they don't have the power to carry out the sentence. And so they're going to have to do something even more malicious. They're going to have to give me over to the Gentiles. And the Gentiles will then take me from there and they will beat me and flog me and mock me and crucify me. That's what Jesus just told his best friends. He just told them they've been friends for three years and he drops this news on them. I want you to know what awaits me when we get to Jerusalem. And you would expect in Mark's gospel to read Jesus's disciples were grieved and they moved towards him and they embraced him and they prayed over him. You see, I'm, I'm actually sad when I read this because although Jesus was fully God, the Bible also says he was fully human. And here is what it means. This is the human Jesus crying out, telling his friends he's about to die. And you know what Mark is doing in this gospel, in this section? He is describing emotions. Did you catch the emotional language in the passage that when Jesus says we're going up to Jerusalem, look at verse 32, and they were amazed. So he's telling you amazement is what they felt. But he also says some were afraid. Now, here's the thing you don't see. After Jesus tells them he's suffering, you know what Mark does not include? And they were grieved. And they were sad. This was the perfect time to write that because he is not just describing external things. He's also giving us emotional states and on the heels of them hearing he's about to die. He writes nothing about their sorrow. As a matter of fact, it goes straight from this confession that I'm about to die to a question. And that question or statement is, teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. Now, if you've been reading Mark's gospel, we've heard that phrase before, haven't we? You remember when Herod was being seduced by his wife's daughter, that after she danced for the king, that he said to her, Ask of me, and whatever you want, I'll do it. And she went and talked to her mom, and they came back and said, We want John the Baptist's head on a platter. And now all of a sudden, the disciples are acting more like Herod than like Jesus. They're telling Jesus, Ask it, give us what, whatever we want. And here's the thing Jesus is not giving them. A blank check. He doesn't, doesn't get himself in a pickle and has to commit to something and then back out. He actually says, well, tell me what is it that you want from me? And then they drop the bombshell. We want to be on your right hand and your left when you come in glory. And in Matthew's gospel, Matthew says they weren't alone. 
Matthew says, and their mother was with them. So let me get this right. He says he's about to die. And you and your brother and your mother go to him and say, all right, enough of that, Jesus. When you come out of Jerusalem, we want to be on your right and your left. What's going on there? That's the epitome and the ugliness of the greatness of this world. And before we say, man, how could they? This is a little acorn right here in my hand. You can barely see it. And we believe that if you were to go plant this in the ground right outside right now and water it and do it the right way, that in a couple months, something's going to sprout up. And left alone, intended to for a time, it will blossom and it will be a tree. And what we see in this passage is the tree. We see the tree, the greatness of the world when it runs its course, where they are numb to the suffering of Jesus. And here's the mistake that we make. We make the mistake to think that the seed form of this is not in all of our hearts. It's there because of our sin. It's there that we can talk about the suffering and death and beauty of Jesus. And you're checking Instagram to see how many followers you got. You're worried about greatness when the greatness of Jesus is right in front of you. It's there whenever we care more about giving orders than following his. The seed form of that greatness is there. It's there when we walk around with our chest out because we think we're important. It's there when we want to make a name for ourselves and we can recount all of our accolades and successes and we're silent when it comes to the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's there in your heart, in my heart, in our children's hearts. It's there. How many times did you wake up this week and your thought was, how might I be a bond servant to people today? How might I enslave myself to people today? Not because I need a check and I need to go be a yes man at the office. Not because I should get up through the night and feed my child. But I'm talking about that waking up longing desire to lay down my life for the service and good of others. What Mark then shows us is the effects that this type of living has. I don't know if you know it, but this is a really hard scene. I want you to think about Jesus's, one of his last prayers in John 17. He prays, Lord, may my people be one. 
May the world see their unity and in seeing their unity and camaraderie and fellowship and outdoing one another and doing good, that the world will see something else, namely you and me and the Trinity. Did you catch what their words, how it affects what's happening in the passage? Now, I want you to think for a moment about Peter. Peter, James, and John, those three are always together in, in Mark's gospel. That when Jesus went into the home and raised a little girl from the dead, which three got to go in the room? It was Peter, James, and John. When Jesus went on the mountain and was transfigured, who got to go on the mountain? It was those three, Peter, James, and John. And so think about what's happening here. These three have been Jesus's closest friends in his ministry. And all of a sudden, they, the two, sneak to the side and say, Jesus, can we be at your right hand and at your left? Now, can you imagine what this feels like to Peter? Because where does Peter go? You can't go in the front of Jesus. And if the right hand and the left hand is occupied by James and John, what does that put you? That puts you out. Think about the other nine disciples. What does this feel like when you see these two brothers trying to make a side deal with Jesus? We don't have to guess. Mark actually tells us. He says it. When the ten heard it, they, became, they began to be indignant at James and John. Now, if you go back to the section before this one, Jesus has just said that those who leave land and house and mother and father and brother and sister, he just, he, he's just taught them that coming to him is a grand leaving, and in coming to him, he is forging this grand family where, where the blood of the family of Christ, where we're blood bought by the person and work of Jesus, and he calls us away from ultimate allegiance to people we, who we grew up with and a higher allegiance to people we've been redeemed with by the blood of Christ. And here you have these two brothers undermining what he just taught. He just taught it. And here they are saying, man, forget about the other 10, Jesus. It's, it's us. Imagine what it does to Jesus in his moments of grief and sadness. He has to stop and settle a fight. It says that you know that he called them to himself and he says, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority. Gentiles is cold word for a world that does not know God. It's cold word for non-Jews who did not believe in the one true God. And Jesus says they're forceful. They rule with an iron fist. They wield their privilege and they let everyone know that they're important. And here's the thing. If you were hearing Jesus say this, you would know exactly what he's talking about. If you go back and read Greco-Roman emperors, 
and how broken those families were. Or Herod would take his brother's wife. Where a father would get his one son killed because he wanted the other son to be great. Where sons would kill one another so that they could ascend to the throne. Where emperors viewed themselves as gods and wherever they went, they paraded their power and made people bow down before them. Jesus says, this is what you look like right here. You look just like the world. You're discarding anyone to get what you want. You're belittling everyone to get what you want. You're seizing every single opportunity you can get to get your name in light. And what we start to see in this passage, it's destructive and it's damaging. Now, I know I got several kids here, so what I'm going to do today is, is do a throwback. So, man, I love Dr. Seuss. Anybody like Dr. Seuss? All right. Man, he has one called Yertle the Turtle. Y'all know that? Raise your hand if you know Yertle the Turtle. Turn up. All right. All right. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to show you a picture, and then I'm going to read through it. It's just easier. You see this, man. He's a little turtle, and he's a ruler of a pond, and he gets these bright ideas. And before you know it, he is stacking himself up to become great. Now, listen to the words. On a faraway island of Salamasan, Yertle the turtle was king of a pond. A nice little pond. It was clean. It was neat. The water was warm. There was plenty to eat. Turtles had everything turtles might need. All were happy, quite happy indeed. Until Yertle, the king of them all, decided his kingdom was too small. I'm ruler, said Yertle, of all that I see, but I don't see enough, and that's the trouble with me. With this stone for a throne, I look down on my pond, but I cannot look down on the places beyond. I ought to be higher, he said with a frown. If I could be high, how much greater I'd be. I'd be ruler of all that I could see. So Yertle ordered nine turtles to swim to his stone. And using those turtles, he built him a new throne. He made each turtle stand on another's back and he piled them up in a nine turtle stack. And then Yertle climbed up and he sat on the pile. What a wonderful view. I can view for a mile. And then from below of the great heavy stack came a groan from a little plain turtle called Mac. Your majesty, please, I don't like to complain, but down here below we are feeling great pain. I know up top you're seeing great sights, but down at the bottom, we too should have rights. We turtles can't stand it. Our shells are about to crack. Plus, we need food. We're starving, said little Mac. You hush up your mouth, howled the mighty King Yertle. You have no right to talk to the world's highest turtle. I rule from the clouds over land, over sea. There's nothing, no nothing more higher than me. But while he was shouting, he saw with a surprise the moon of that evening was starting to rise. What's that, snorted Yertle? Say, what is that thing that dares to be higher than me, Yertle the king? I shall not allow it. 
I'll go higher still. I'll build my throne higher. I can and I will. I'll call more turtles and stack them to heaven. I need 5,607. And that plain little Mac did a plain little thing. He burped and his burp shook the throne of the king. Then Yertle the turtle, the king of Salamasan, fell off his high throne and fell plunk in the pond. And today that great Yertle, that marvelous he, is king of the mud. That's all he can see. Isn't that a picture of what we do when we want greatness of the world? We will put whomever under us we want to see, we want to be king. And what we discover, it's a faulty king. And it's destructive. More than that, it's satanic. Have you ever thought about why the world is in the shape it's in right now? R.C. Sproul in Table Talk had an issue on Satan. And he quoted our confession, which speaks of God and his providence per permitted some angels to fall into sin and dam damnation. And what some would say is that Satan was an angel of the Lord. And in his pride, he rebelled. And he was kicked out. And the carnage and mess that we see in the world was burst out of this longing to be greater than God. This is what kills marriages. When we look after ourselves and not the interests of others, this is what creates toxic church cultures. This is what creates toxic work cultures. When everyone is out to make a name for self at the expense of anyone, it's destructive. Now what Jesus does is he gives us another way to live that's made possible by and through himself that you'll notice something in our passage. And, and I think it's, if you're in the hermeneutics class that we're doing on Wednesdays, I think this is an instance of parallelism. Now, what do you mean parallelism? It's a tool that we see in uh, the Psalms where the psalmist might say one thing and then he, I'll give you an example of it, Jimmy. So notice what Jesus says. He says, you know, those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles, and then what do they do? Uh-oh. <laughs> it says, you know, those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles, they do what? They lord it over them. And then he comes back again to quantify who the rulers of the Gentiles are. They're also known as the great ones. And what do they do? They exercise authority over them. And then notice the line in the saying that Jesus puts there. He says, but 
it shall not be so among you. And then he gives them a new vision for living. Whoever will be great among you. I'm not talking about Gentiles, Jesus says. I'm talking about if you name the name of Jesus, if you will be great among you, you must be servant. Whoever will be first among you must be slave. Thank you, Greg. You see what Jesus is doing? He's saying that's true for the world. But there's another way to live. Greatness in my kingdom is not about lording it over. Greatness in my kingdom is not about having the best seats. Greatness in my kingdom is by being a servant, by being a slave. Now, my question is how? How is this possible? Did you notice what Jesus calls himself in this passage? He actually says it in verse 39, the son of man. Now, why is that important to hone in on what Jesus just said? Because when his original hearers would have heard that phrase, you want to know where their minds would have went to? It would have gone all the way back to our call to worship. It would have gone back to Daniel chapter 7. And in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel sees these visions. He saw this vision of the ancient of days. And ten thousands upon ten thousands were bowing and worshiping the ancient of days. And then he sees another vision. He sees someone like a son of man who comes before and is presented before the ancient of days. And then the ancient of days says, you, your kingdom is from everlasting to everlasting. It has no end. And people from every nation and tribe and language will bow down and worship you. And here is the thing that should be mind blowing. When Jesus says he is the son of man. He's saying, I'm the greatest. I'm the eternal one. I'm the one that Daniel saw. I'm the one whom the Father has given the kingdom and crown with glory and honor. And you want to know what would have dropped Daniel's jaw? To see that one who has myriads and ten thousands of ten thousands all bowing the knee before him to turn around and see that one come to the earth and put on flesh and become a human? To see that one be born of a woman and to enter time and space? To see that one who bent down and scrubbed feet? Daniel would have said there is no place for the son of man to do this. I've seen where your kingdom is going. I know who you are. And Paul would say, oh, but yes, there is. He did not count equality with God as something to be grasped. Paul would go on and, and he would just blow our minds with this truth that, that though he was God, he did not count equality with God as something to be grasped, but he emptied himself and taking the form of a servant. The same thing he's talking about in this passage. Born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, 
he humbled himself even more by becoming obedient unto death, even death on a cross. The most shameful way to die in Gentile culture was stripped, naked, beaten, and bruised, and to be strung up on a cross. The most humiliating way to die. And Jesus says, the Son of Man will do it. He says, I will drink the cup. That cup in the Old Testament is always the wrath of God. He says, I will be baptized. And baptism can have a positive connotation, but it can also have a negative judgmental connotation. Think about what happens in baptism, not, not how we administer it here, but maybe the way that Jesus sort of viewed it then, that there is a submersion, there is a going under. Think about how God judged the world through Noah. Think about Psalm 69 when the waves are crashing over the psalmist. It's this image of judgment. And here is what Jesus is saying. As the son of man, I will drink the cup of God's wrath. And as the son of man, I will go under the ways of God's wrath. And you want to know why he would do it. He says it in the passage. I came to give my life as a ransom for people like you and me who chase this type of greatness he's preaching against. We have a debt that we owe to the greatest one. And the only way we live and can stand before him is if someone drinks it. And Jesus says, I'll do it. I'll give my life. The great one will become humble so that people who think they're great can come to me and see a new category for greatness. This is why if we're struggling with serving and finishing last and not being always in charge, if we always have to get orders, the ultimate problem is not with people. We're not seeing the work of Jesus correctly. It's an invitation this morning. If you're chasing the greatness of the world, you'll be forgotten. Your throne is shaky. It's going to crumble. And Jesus says, come to me. I'm ransoming you, not just from your sins, but from that path of greatness. Our last point is the command and blessing to live this way. Did you notice what Jesus tells James and John? He says, can you drink the cup? Yeah, we can. Yeah, we can. And what does Jesus say? Oh, you will. <laughs> All right, you will. What is he saying? 
there's not a one-to-one correlation. In other words, James and John, they're not about to get on the cross. They're not not to atone for anybody's sin. They're humans. They're in need of salvation. But there is a cross-shaped life where anyone who names the name of Jesus will go after him. And he says, you'll do it. And James was martyred in Acts, in the book of Acts. John was persecuted and exiled on the island of Patmos. That what you start to see, that if we name the name of Christ, we've been commanded to be servants. Now that command and the power for that is in, it, it, it's through the gospel. But we're going to be known by service and humility. Now here's the question. What does it do? What's the good, right? If, if in our selfishness, we fracture and break and move against unity, then what's true? That if we are by the Spirit walking after Jesus in humility, right? If, if, if we're walking after him, what's true? It means that we get to be a part of what God is doing to showcase himself to the world. In 2 Corinthians, Paul talks about us, you and I, as being the aroma of Christ. That, and, and that's a book on suffering. That as we suffer and, and look like Jesus in our world, what does Paul say is happening? We're spreading the fragrant aroma of Jesus. I don't know about y'all, but I love when my wife puts a pot on. And how it just fills up the whole house. You walk in from work and as soon as you walk in the door, you smell it. And you know something is cooking. And here is what Paul and Mark is saying. When we go the way of Jesus, we smell funny. We don't smell like the world. We give off this fragrant aroma. What is that cooking in your heart? It's the gospel, baby. That's the gospel you smell. That's Jesus you're seeing work in me. We get to be a part of that. We get to play our role in micromending the brokenness in our world. There's a pastor in a cohort that I'm in, and and we were talking this week, and he talked about when he came home, he he was converted in high school, and he went home and he ran home to his mom, and he says, Mom, I will totally die for Jesus. And his mom says, okay, but will you go wash the dishes for him now? (laughs) He's given this grand big thing that he's going to do for Jesus And his mama started to disciple him, but will you go wash dishes? Will you start small, baby? And he talks about how his mom taught him a theology of small things. 
Small things such as putting your own plate in the dishwasher. Small things such as wiping up the pee from around the seat when you pee on it, little boys, right? Small things like going out to eat and the table is a mess and you know the server is coming after you to clean up, but you could say, well, I'm tipping her so she needs to do her job. Or you could say, I don't know what kind of day she had and these are my kids. Baby girl, how can I help you with this mess right here? He said his mama taught him a theology of doing small little things to the glory of Jesus. And these things start to add up and change a home. When mama comes home and the toys are already up because the kids are thinking, how can I serve mama today? It changes. When the baby has to get up in the middle of the night and the daddy says, baby, you sleep. Let me get up today. Somebody has to die so that somebody can get rest. You see what it is that, that, that these small little things that we can do over and over and over and over again, you know what they start to change? They start to change homes and marriages. And we're not even talking about the world yet. We're talking about right here where we live and move and have our being. What would happen if everybody in the home had the default posture? How do I lay down my rights in order to serve? You talk about kids seeing Jesus and husbands and wives seeing Jesus. And we can do this on macro levels. I, I often wonder what would be the history of our country if the first people to come here viewed themselves as servants and slaves. What would happen? Like, 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 think about that. Think about that concept, because that's what Jesus is saying. If you're going to be great, be a servant, be a slave to all. What would the history of our country be around race? What about fatherlessness when it, it's rampant in certain communities? What would it be like if a father would say, I could leave, I could bounce but I choose to stay and serve my wife, my baby mama, and my children. I choose to stay. What would it be like if officers walked into apartments and they entered the house? I'm here to serve. Even if it means laying down my life. You see, Paul says in Philippians, we're to look after our interest and the interest of others. And notice it's a both and. So think about the airplane. On the airplane, they say, hey, when the oxygen mask comes down, what do they say do? Put your own mask on first and then help somebody else. You know how we live? We put our own mask on and we don't think about nobody else. And what Paul is saying First, second, 
There's always a second. There's always a second. What would happen? What would our world be like? We would start showcasing the world that will be. We'll give a picture of the world that will be unfragmented and beautiful. Finally, Jesus says, we'll raise. Jesus says he'll die. He'll lay down his life. But on the third day, the Father will raise him. Isn't that good news? That the Father will raise his people. We will stand before him. Good job, my faithful servant. May that be true for us. Let's pray. Our Father, we bless you. We love you. We ask your blessings upon your word. Would you apply it to our hearts? Would you make us, Lord, servants in the way of Jesus? Those who are willing to lay down our lives for others. Not just in big things, but in 1,000 small ways. May you write that idea of a servant Christian. Sear it upon our hearts as we gaze more and more at the one who became like us to redeem us. Would you do this for your glory, your honor. Amen.